Welcome to part two of the story of Hamidi Jassim, the terrorist whisperer. I'm your host, Kevin Sullivan, and this is 21 Gun. In our last episode, Hamidi explained how growing up under the Saddam Hussein regime affected his life and how 9-11 changed all that. What he didn't expect was to wake up one morning and find a tall American soldier named Brad from Texas in his front yard. Little did he know, this chance encounter was the beginning of a harrowing odyssey that would take him from the bloody battlefields of the Ambar province to a deadly game of cat and mouse with insurgent terrorists, and eventually to the suburbs of America. It was the best show I ever had in my life. And look, I've been to New York City, some of the Rockefeller stuff and all that. I'll tell you, the best experience I ever had in my life is having a chair, watching the whole entire U.S. Air Force in the air, and watching Saddam's trying his SAM missiles, trying to shoot him down. And I watched actually a couple of jets that got shot down. And you can see the jet when it blew up, landed down. And then towards the end of it, the U.S. jets start coming lower and lower and lower. And I mean... I had a pilot, I think if it was an F-16, it was coming close, I could see the pilot. He was maneuvering around, but that was like minutes before the troops, that actually the infantry troops moved in. And that's when the infantry troops showed up, and people were like, these are North Americans, these are Iraqis. And I'm looking at the Bradley for the first time in my life, and I said, I have seen the Iraqi tanks, they're not as high. These are high armored these are definitely not Iraqis. And people were like, oh, no, this is probably like a high force, special force for Saddam. Like, they can't make something like that. I know the Iraqis' capabilities. They can't make that. I said, that's an American made. And I, I just decided, I said, you know what? And I opened my front door, and then there's an American soldier. Uh, first time in my life seeing a white guy. This is the whitest guy I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, the guy was white. I could see his veins through his arms. And I was like, that's definitely not an Iraqi. For sure. And I just, and you know, I, you see the body armor was all the green body armors. And I'm looking at the guy and I, I just said, I said, sir, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Texas. And then he looked at me and he said, are you guys happy we're here? I said, you have no idea. And uh, yeah, he did. He's like, are you guys happy here? He's like, are you happy we're here? He just asked me with a like wondering. He was like, why, why the hell am I talking to him? And I'm asking him that question. I said, are you guys staying or are you guys are leaving? Like, what, what's going to happen? And he said, what do you mean we're leaving? Um, I said, like, are you going to leave out of Iraq? Like, are you going to go through this neighborhood and get out and go to America? Are you staying? He said, oh, I don't know what you mean. No, 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 we're staying. And when he said that word, it just, it, it actually broke all the eyes for me. And I, I looked at him and I said, I said, uh, I said I, I've been waiting for this day. And he said, he's like, why do you seem excited over here? I said, yeah, I have no idea what I've been through. But I wanted to make sure you guys are not leaving. I said, because if you're leaving, I can't talk to you. He said, no, 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 we're, we're not leaving. And I took a walk with that guy, and we just talked. And, and he, said, um, he, said, he said, man, I ran out of cigarettes. I came from Kuwait. And he said, it sucks right now. I have no cigarettes. And I said, you want cigarettes? I said, I'll go get you cigarettes. And I went and grabbed all my dad's cigarettes, like literally all of them. All his stash, and it was like an Iraqi brand, shitty brand called Somer. Shitty brand, man. It's like so bad for you. I feel bad. I hope I didn't give that guy cancer or something. But I took it all, and I was like, he was like, are you sure? I'll just take one, one cigarette. I said, no, 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 take the, take the boxes. I said, my dad doesn't need to smoke anymore. He's done. And he took it, and we had a nice conversation. It was really cool, you know. And, uh, 
and 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 he went away. I went back home, and I was just a different person at that point. I came home, and within within like two days, three, four days, they stopped broadcasting. Like there was no TVs or anything. That there was like a a broadcasting for the U.S. military. Of course, everybody trying to figure out what's going on. And then they said, the Iraqi police, you can come back to work. So the Iraqi police went back. They, each one of them reported to his police station. There are Americans there. And they said, we let go of the old Iraqi military. And we're going to establish a new Iraqi military. And once they... Uh, I heard that on the radio, actually, uh, about the Iraqi military thing. And I didn't even ask. I didn't even tell my parents a word. I just left home. I went straight to Reconing Center. I mean, you have to know, in Iraq is mandatory to be in the, in the military during Saddam. Everybody got their ass handed to them being in the military. So nobody wants to go in the military at that point. Nobody. I mean, it was mandatory. People been in the Iran-Iraq war, got shot at, lost legs. People died. People got captured, never came home because Iran kept them. It, and they stayed in concentration camp. I mean, nobody wants to know the word military. And I show up, and it was about four people. Four hopeless people and myself in that line. And the America's wondering, like, why these fucked up Iraqis are here? Like, it has to be a big reason. So I go, the four people go in front of me, and I probably the four people who are people ran out of prison during the war. I mean, there's really funny stories later on. I had a guy who ran later on. I found out he ran from the psych hospital. So the three guys went, and I, I came in, and I walked. An American guy looked at me. He's like, how old are you, man? Let me look. And I showed my ID, my Iraqi Jinsia, which is written by hand. And he said, oh, he's like, you're 17. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm 17. And he said, unfortunately, the rules are 18 and above. He's like, unless you go and, and you know, he's like, it's, it's unless you go and you just come back when you're 18. And when he told me that I have to come back next year, I knew there will be no next year for me. I just didn't know what to do, and I was like, okay, I'll go back home. And as I was going back home, I was like, I can fake this ID. I know people, it, it, they can fake it. I mean, even during Saddam, you can fake your ID. Because during Saddam, you were in the military, you had a special badge if you are on leave. If you're going on leave, and if the military police catch you and you you're ran away from your unit, they can kill you. So people used to fake these little badges so they can get away. And I, there's a guy in my neighborhood who specialized in it. He opened it. He changed my date of birth. Updated it a year. And, and he said, if I was you, I wouldn't go back the same day. I'll just wait, go back tomorrow. He's like, you know, Americans probably can't handle the heat in Iraq. I said, you know what? They, he probably's gone by now. I said, probably someone else is going to be there. I'll go. I'll get in. So I go back and there was nobody. It's just nobody in the line. And it looked like these three guys went in, three, four guys went in, and I'm, I'm coming in, and I'm hoping, I'm like, I hope it's not the right guy. And I change my shirt, I'm putting a hat on, and I go, and it's the same exact dude. And he must be from Arizona. The weather didn't bother him. And at that time, I didn't realize these guys were doing like a 13, 14-hour shift. And I go in, he looks at me, and, and he looked at the ID. And I, I, I think he had a tobacco on his, his mouth. He looked at the ID and he looked at it, and he's like, "He's like, dude, I thought you were like 17 two hours ago." And I looked at him. I said, "We had a birthday." I said, "I'm 18 now." He laughed and he was like, "How did you do this?" I said, "I, I changed it. I actually went and I changed it." He laughed and he's like, "You know what? Go get one of your parents to sign this, and I'll let you in." 
And I went and grabbed my mother, who's like the not, only non-English speaker in the house. Took her in. She signed it. He saw her with me. And he was like, you're in. And I walked. It was a small door. I walked in. And there was American employees doing all the medical check, all the preparing you like as mop station kind of thing. Check your eyes, check everything. And, and I still remember there was an American woman who, who was doing like checking my eyes. And, and she goes, how old are you? I said, oh, I'm 18. She's like, you look 15. I said, oh, no, no, I am, I'm, I just, I'm just a little skinny. And I'm, I said, no, but I am, I am 18, I swear. You know, I didn't want to go back. And they gave me a shipment date. And they said, yo, come back next week. There'll be a convoy here that's going to take you to, to boot camp. And I came back, and my dad yelled the, sh the shit out of me in, my, in a home. And he's like, you're going to die. He's like, you are going to die. And I said, fine. I said, I, I rather do this. I if you don't let me, I'm going to run away. I said, I, I want to do this. And he's like, well, you're crazy. You're going to die. And I, I, I took it, and I went to my shipment date. I got shipped to uh, northern Iraq. It's called Karakush. It's near the Iranian borders. And they hired MPRI, an American training company. The boot camp for the new Iraqi army was contracted out to a private American company staffed with former Marines, most of which were veterans of Vietnam. I got shipped on the first shipment, and there was supposed to be a second shipment that will be there three days later, and a car bomb blew up on that second shipment killed a lot of them and from there that's when the resistance started a lot of the al-fidayin saddam suicide fighters all these guys kind of regrouped at that point they immediately acted on killing anybody that's wanted to join so they sent a car bomb that was a massive actually killed a lot of people a lot of the ones that were supposed to come so i went i got to the base and the convoy took us there it was about five hours on the road you got there and uh, it, it was funny because we're Iraqis. We don't know anything about boot camp. We, we had no idea what was going on. And, and your boot camp instructors don't speak your language. So I still remember I felt like they were going to welcome you with open arms and, and you know, with, with kind of like flowers and <laughs> the bus pulled in. <laughs> it was all American Vietnam veterans, mostly were Marines. All these old grunts from the Marine Corps. I still remember an old man got up. They all were wearing like a blue uniforms. And he had like a hat. It looked like a Texas hat, but they all had that hat. It's like an instructor hat. And he, they, he got in, and, and I still remember the, the word. I wish I didn't know what it was back then. And he just got in. He said, get the, get the F out of here. And he screamed hard, like, you know, he just, someone angry. And then all these Iraqis started running, pushing each other, stepping on each other, trying to get out of that little bus door. And he's yelling push-ups, push-ups. And all these Iraqis are looking at him like, like, what, what's going on? And I, I heard the word push-ups, so I, I yelled at the Iraqis. I'm like, push-ups, like, just do push-ups. And I, I went in, and then the rest of the Iraqis went in. And they were like, holy crap, like, this is the reception. And then, like, literally, they took you from there to the next building. They shaved your head. Then they took you to your bed. They took you, gave you a number, took a picture of you, gave you an ID. You ate your meal, and they're like, see you tomorrow at 4 a.m. And it really just started, like, over the vast. And three days later, we were supposed to get the second shipment. And, you know, we, we learned how to make our beds because all our mattresses got thrown out of the second floor. In the first day, like if you didn't make that line and they didn't like it, 
then so you, you go in formation and then they go up and if they don't like your mattress the two instructors open the window and you don't know who the hell is mattress it is you just see mattresses and you'd be like that's my room but there's eight people in that room so i don't know and you you went back in and you saw it was your bed and it it was it was funny for us it was like hilarious you know like you're sitting there and you're watching mattresses going up and and the Rockies going like, what's going on? I think that's my mattress. And and they just threw it in and came back. And you got introduced to this American boot camp. And, and you know, the three days later, I think everything was a joke in the first three days laughing. And then you hear, these, they're like, there will be no second shipment. Everybody that tried to come in here died. And we heard from, like, people telling us that, like, it's people parts, body parts all over the road. And you hear that, it was just fear. You know, at that point, they said, it's either you're going home, either you're going to train, because once you come out of this gate, these guys are going to chew you alive. The whole country is going to fight you. And, you know, this was the first 150 soldiers in the Iraqi military. This was like the first unit, the first battalion. And you're training every single day saying, I'm going to come out of this gate, and as soon as I come out of this gate, I'm going to get shot at. And truly, the training was beyond brutal. Imagine your instructors didn't have, didn't care about your life, and these were old school veterans who actually seen actual combat, con conventional war, and they took it to the next level, man. Like I mean, these guys were not young, but they took it to the next level. We were doing PT twice a day. We were training all day. And they brought a five-star Iraqi restaurant to give you food. I mean, look, five-star, I mean it like these Iraqis who were with me in that training base has never, some of them have, was never been able to afford meat in their life. They were vegan. And, you know, we came into the restaurant and they gave you two, two shish of steak kebabs. And all you want, and if you are hungry, go back and eat more. And I, I swear, some of the guys next to me said, I have never tasted meat in my life because of the sanctions in Iraq. I think the only thing they didn't eat was the metal, the metal plate. I mean, th these people were eating like no one business because it was a five-star restaurant you heard of. And I'll tell you, three months, three months of eating healthy and training, like a lot of training. I mean, we would go to the mountains and we would walk like... 26 miles with your gear, everything, and then sometimes they'll bring you food to you while you're out there. And I'll tell you, like, you would look forward to the next meal because you enjoyed, like, food, meat, chicken. You know, like, you hear it, and, and some guy's next to me, and he's like, I never had meat in my life. And I, he's like, nobody, did you have meat? I said, maybe once a month. He's like, well, I never had it. And they would ask him, like, I can go have again, and then the instructors were like, go back, go again, and eat. And, and it really... Three months. I'm, I still remember everybody got to that training with skinny, bony-looking person. Even myself. You see my pictures? I was skinny as hell. And three months of PT, eating healthy, I can see all the Iraqi soldiers' bodies, faces, skin. Everything started changing. Like We looked completely different people coming out of that training base. And the training was hard. Hard as hell. I'm telling you, like, they canceled that contract later on. Because they didn't want, like, units to be trained at that level. 
And that division, they trained. They only trained the first Iraqi division ever. That's it. They never ever. The contract got canceled. Believe it or not, it's the only Iraqi unit that has not been defeated. When the Iraqi unit got demo when the Iraqi army got demolished by ISIS in 2014, this was the only Iraqi unit that did not get demolished, did not lose a battle, and it was the unit that won back and liberated Mosul with the Iraqi SF. So I want you to wrap your head around this for a moment. Hamidi's unit was just finished with training, a unit that did not exist months earlier, filled with new soldiers without combat experience. Their only saving grace was the expert level of training they received from the U.S. contractors. It didn't take long before Hamidi's unit would be tested in the Ambar province. They explained to us, they said, look, you're going to come out of here, we're going to go home. We're going back to the state, but you are going to get shot at. And you're the only unit. If you don't come out there and prove yourself, there'll be no more units after you. So it, it, it got serious to the point where we realized, look, we might go out, we might die. But if we don't do well, there'll be no more people here. And we need to make sure this base keeps going. We got out, I, I'll tell you, like motivated soldiers, fed well. And it was the first time... Uh, after they gave us salaries and I'll tell you they call us down to the company and the Americans brought money and uh, no, no paycheck there's no checks or anything it was cash and I still remember my first salary 150,000 Iraqi dinars it was like 100 bucks do you know how big it, that for us uh, and then they gave us the money, and all of us literally never owned that much money in our life. And, you know, we lived under sections, and it was terrible life. And then the Ambar province campaign started in 2004. And the Iraqi prime minister said, we, we didn't have enough soldiers, and you're going there straight out of base to go fight. Straight to the Ambar campaign in 2004. And it was vicious. And they said, whoever's going to the Ambar province, all this unit, each Iraqi soldier is going to get paid one million dinar. And you're going to get paid right now in advance for three months. And they wanted to make sure you don't run away. There's 150 people. But they said, you're going, you're going to get one million. So we went from 150,000 to one million. And we went down to receive it. And we're like, it's not a joke. And they're like, no, no, it's no joke. You're getting it right now. And I still remember I went. And I, I went, it was like my turn, you stood in the line, and they gave you a lump of cash. It was like one million dinar. Iraqi. I mean, this was big deal for us. That's an equivalent of $1,000. But that's big. And some of the individuals with me, a guy behind me, who, was, who later served with me as an NCO, said, my whole entire life, I have never seen a 25,000 dinars. My whole life. And he's like, I'm about to get this million. And I said, you're about to get three because they're going to give you three months. He said, at this point, and I still remember what he said. He said a joke. He said, dude, at this point, even if the Prophet Muhammad comes down, I'm going to fight him. <laughs> and I still like literally remember that conversation. He's like, dude, if, a, if the Prophet is fighting with these bastards, I'm going to shoot him. And we took the cash and we went to the Ambar province. We really entered the war. And uh, you kind of saw where your training paid off. The endurance was amazing. We were in uh, what's called Tarek, Tarek Base, uh, which I don't know what you guys called it back then. Um, but 
We, it used to be called Tarak Base during Saddam uh, in Fallujah. And we went in, and once we went in, we didn't come back to the base. We actually went in and deployed to the Umbar province, to the Fallujah area. And I, we got out, and as soon as we got out, they had like ICDC, Iraqi Civil Defense Corps at the time. And the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps was different than the Iraqi army. They were locals who they recruited from the local areas. So they were, they were afraid to fight. They were afraid to make any moves. They had their faces covered. Where we came in was like that traditional Iraqi military. It was the first division that just deployed. So we went in. And it, it, you can see actually the level of soldiers that our soldiers had such a high endurance. We were walking 16, 17, 20 miles, fighting, pushing in, going in. And it was different. And I, I think that the, the, the time Al-Qaeda has realized this is not the civil, the civil defense corps. The, they don't know where we came from. And it really is. These were trained by former Marines. They were like PT twice a day, hardcore PT, people who are like completely hungry for a fight. We had AK-47s. We had actually Russian AK-47s. They were black, completely all black. And these used to be the weapons for Al-Fidayun, for Saddam suicide fighters. So these were good AK-47s. Uh, and I'll tell you, with, with that fight, uh, we, we used to make a joke. You can take a, a, a bunch of sand and put it inside of the gun, and the gun will shoot just fine. So you had that trust that your gun will work. Perhaps the Americans had condoms in the top of their gun. And we're like, we don't care. Our gun will work regardless. You know, you could go anywhere and the gun will work. But... We didn't have any firepower, anything, anything above a PKC at that point. We didn't have anything. Like, we had AK-47, RPK, PKC, and pistols. That's all we had. We didn't have RPGs at that point. We, they, we were not even, didn't have any of that. So we just went and we started, like, clearing it out. And after that campaign, they have called a battalion. And they, we thought, like... Why are you calling our battalion? They said, you guys are going to Baghdad. His unit proved itself to be brave, deadly, and very effective in the battle against Al-Qaeda. Their mission would soon be shifted to the heart of the nation's capital of Baghdad into the deadly urban battles for the highly volatile and contested area known as Haifa Street. You guys are going to Baghdad. And we kind of like, we're like, what's our mission? They said, you guys are going to protect the recruiting center. And when they said that, that's the recruiting center where people died. And we're like, what, why, what's going on in the recruiting center? They said, it's Al Muthanna Air, ba Air Base. That's where the recruiting center is. They said, we just want to let you know that will be maybe two, three car bombs that blow up a day at the checkpoint. They said, your job, so my platoon took over the checkpoint. And they said, you'll switch every three days. You'll, you will protect the checkpoint and then other three days you will patrol to Haifa Street which Haifa Street was about half a mile into Haifa Street from that area so the people who are fighting you coming from Haifa Street and I went in and I saw the towers and I, I my platoon I, I was a platoon sergeant I took over the front checkpoint not even half a mile there was like a half a mile a mosque and then you see Haifa Street starts because of the high building it was like the most dangerous two miles on Iraq Period. And nobody dared to go through that. Even the second cavalry unit, the American units, they were not able to go there. They were patrolling there. There had people been getting killed. A lot of American soldiers were dying there. Perhaps I used to see the convoys that go and patrol. 
And when they come back, I used to see gunners being shot and bleeding while heading back to the base. I used to see the QRF kind of fly out. So you saw all the in and out. You knew what was happening. And I got to the checkpoint, and uh, the Americans actually were in the back, and the Iraqi soldiers were in the front. So they all have to step on you and kill you before they get to the man. And there was a Bradley in there, and there was about maybe a squad of, of American soldiers that's in the back just really protecting the American base that's about a half a mile away. But you, you're kind of that. That's the checkpoint. You slept right there behind the checkpoint. So I got there, and like the first night I got there, we got attacked by heavy gunfire. And I still remember... Every day, I called it the party because it was like every day you get attacked at night. You're, you go to sleep in the morning and around 6.37 when that line fills up because people come in to fill applications for the Iraqi military, you hear car bombs blow up. So imagine you go to sleep at 6 in the morning, 7.10, you hear boom, the checkpoint blow up. You come out, half of the people you saw in that second ship that switched with you, dead. And I, 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 one of them blew up literally in the line. They used suicide bombers. So we had to figure out how can we have a line without the suicide bomber making it inside the checkpoint where we're checking people. So we decided, look, we're going to sacrifice four or five Iraqi soldiers that are going to go to the front, to the, out to the road, away from the concrete barriers. You're just going to be exposed. You're out there. Your job is to search everybody. Most likely a suicide bomber is going to come to you. We're going to switch shifts. And when you're there for your two hours, it's your luck. We'll switch over. We're all going to go there. We, we, just, we just realized this is it. Like if you're going in there, you're going to do it. You're going you're gonna to die. A car bomb going to blow up next to you or a suicide bomber is going to come hug you and you're done. And, I, and I, I will never forget this. We had a guy from Sudan came to the line. And at the time, only Iraqis were joining. And definitely a guy from Sudan did not want to join. And he walked in, and, and a couple of the soldiers said, this guy is about maybe 25 feet. So we said, go in. Go, like, approach him. And as they approached him, he had a detonator. And he's kicking on the detonator, and the detonator is not working. So they tackled him down. And all I, all I see is... Two of my soldiers are bunching somebody in the ground, and they're trying to hold his arm. And I came in, and it was like I couldn't see his face at that point. And I came in, and I seen the guy was wearing a suicide belt. And it, and it really was like a freaky point. You're screaming, people running away, and that guy in the ground. And my soldiers were like, we just shoot him in the head so he doesn't move. And they came in, they removed it out of him, and they arrested him. Something that is important to point out here and this is difficult for us Americans to comprehend, is that Hamity and his unit were deployed in their own country. So it's the equivalent of being from New York City and then getting deployed to Times Square. A lot of these guys were home, but they couldn't visit their friends or families for fear of deadly reprisals. And at that point, we kind of felt like, look, it's not gonna, we're not gonna live you go home, the people who went home are from the South and Kurds because the unit was mixed from people from all over, 
uh, the three recording centers, Baghdad, Kurdistan, and the one in Basra. So the people who lived outside of Baghdad, they went home. If you lived in Baghdad, don't go home. Because you go home, you'll get killed. If your people in your neighborhood know you're a soldier, you're shaved up. You're shaved up, you have darker skin, you're, you look like you've been training, they'll kill you. I didn't go home. I was done. I didn't go home. I know at that point, I was like, if I go home, I'm going to get out of here in a coffin. Other than that, I'm getting out of here in a convoy. That's the only two ways I can get out. And they actually put the whole focus at the time to concentrating on people joining the Iraqi military. They didn't want people from Iraq joining the Americans in the fight. And the problem is, is for you, you wouldn't know who's who in Iraq. For us, we can tell who you are based on your social status, what neighborhood you live in, what age you are, what tribe you're from. We can tell. It's like five steps we put you through. We can tell if you're a Saddam loyalist, if you're just a regular guy. And that's why they were nervous, is that you have locals are fighting with you. And perhaps the people who are getting killed... The Iraqi soldiers who went home were the ones from Baghdad. Because you knew all this. So they decided that it wasn't effective attacking the checkpoint every day. And perhaps I almost got killed twice in that checkpoint. And my life, one of them, one time my life got saved by an American soldier. His name is Staff Sergeant Golfs. He used to be a Marine and got out, went back with the Army. And uh, a guy actually walked through the checkpoint with a PKC. And one of my idiots in the tower was sleeping. And um, I'm standing, giving my back to the checkpoint. Because I'm depending on towers who can see what's above me, what's behind me. And we saw, they saw him through the bar. And all of a sudden, that guy came in and he had a PKC and no shoes. Kind of like wearing pants, no shoes, and came out. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there and I see a guy, big six-foot guy, American guy, who was big dude, running towards me and tackled me like half a meter in the air. Tackled me. As he, as he tackled me, bullets went through. Like, literally, as he took me down and I went behind the barriers, I fell behind the barrier, and I don't know why he jumped me. Like, I didn't know at that point. As soon as I hit the ground, bullets just went through. He opened fire. He saw him, and he saw that I was right, giving my back. And he was aiming at me, and, and the guys were talking to me. He just jumped, actually. He, he jumped. He took me with him. And I laid down, and when he opened fire, I mean, when a PKC about 15 meters away opened on you, you can't see a thing. I mean, I couldn't even put my gun up to shoot at random, and I was afraid, like, if, if, if this is getting close to me. So he shot it, and then once... Someone opened fire at him. He ran. And um, as he ran, I, I just, at that point, I was like, I got up and I was trying to check myself. I was actually shot. I didn't feel it, maybe. And, you know, I, I owe that guy my life. You know, like my whole life, I owed it to him. And uh, I got up, and at that point, I was, like, terrified. And two days later, they figured out that if they wanted to make a statement, they have to capture an actual soldier in uniform so they can actually make a statement. But killing the civilians who are just being applicants is not powerful enough. If checkpoint duty wasn't hard enough, Hamidi's unit was asked to push into one of the deadliest sections of Baghdad, known as Haifa Street. There was no Iraqi unit better prepared for this mission, except combat is random 
It's a game of inches, sometimes millimeters. And all the experience and all the training in the world may not be enough to bring you home alive. So I got a call from my commander at the time. And um, we went to his office, me and my lieutenant. He said, we were actually on our shift. We finished our shift. We went to sleep. So they woke us up. They said, get your gear. You guys are going out. I mean, you didn't have any sleep. And we went to the commander office and he said, okay, the Iraqi uh, police wants you to go to Haifa Street to the end of it. And there's a bridge and the Tigers River goes in there. And he said, under that bridge, there's about 25 bodies of applicants laying on top of each other. Their families want to pick them up, but they can't. So go put them in the pickup trucks, take them to the morgue. And so their families can pick them up. So you're looking, you're a platoon of 29 guys. And I looked at my lieutenant and I said, we're going to go and pick these guys up and they're going to let us go. I said, that's not going to happen. And my lieutenant was like, look, we're just going to go. We're going to do it fast. We're not going to care. You're just going to, two, two soldiers at a time, carry a body, throw them in the pickup. I don't care. Don't even worry about what the bodies, how to place them. Just throw them in the truck and let's get out, just got out of here. So we went in. A lot of patrols goes in back and forth. And as soon as we got to the circle in the beginning of Haifa Street, something looked weird. Usually there's traffic in that area. And we go in and there's no traffic. Nobody. And, it, and, he, and I said, you know, I said to my, I said to my lieutenant, I said, is it, is it Friday? Because Fridays are like our sat, it's like our, your weekend. I said, is it Friday? And he said, no, it's not. I said, I felt like everybody's off because there's nobody here. And he said, no, I, I, it's not Friday. He said, but I don't see anybody. We went in, we drove, and we see people from the right, left side moving around. We drove and we went through. It was like six vehicles. And as we drove, they made sure we got to the end of Hyper Street. They placed IDs. They knew everything about us. They knew we have a QRF. They knew exactly where the QRF will come from. Because the Americans and the Iraqis have used the same route for that QRF. And the Tigers River is right here. So once, that's the only way for you to come in. In order for you, like, there's no way, other way unless you go to the other side of Baghdad. And we don't have that many bridges. So you have to go further to come around and come from the other side. So we went, and you can see where the bodies are placed. Something in you tells you, why did they put those bodies in here? Why is it not in the middle of Life Street? Why they didn't throw them in front of the base? Why are these bodies laid right on top of each other right here? And what happened is they had got one of the Iraqi public transportation drivers. Nobody dared to go drive the Rivers Street. Perhaps the driver worked with them and it drove the people as he knew these were applicants leaving to go home. Drove them to Haifa Street. Told the random people to leave and took the applicants out, shot them, and put them there. And the guy who designed this ambush, his name is Colonel Hitchin, who was a famous terrorist in Haifa Street. He was a, a, a Republican Guard staff colonel who was trained in Russia during the Iran-Iraq War. Extremely smart guy. So we stood uphill, and you go downhill. There's a sandy way, and there's the columns of the bridge, and the bodies were put right there. And we went down, me, my lieutenant, and there was about two columns separated by a certain distance. 
And as we walked in, behind you, there's a high building facing you. It's a road, and you go down hill. And once you go down that hill, it's a very exposed area. Like, you're down. Everybody's above you. You can see you. So we left the vehicles. We left half of the platoon and the vehicles, the gunners in it, on PKCs, on the vehicles. Half of us went in and said, look, we're going to carry the bodies. We're going to bring them to you. We're just going to slowly put them in the back up and leave and get out of here. As soon as I got to the bodies, like literally I went down. As soon as I looked, the, the bodies were still bleeding. It was like shot about maybe hours before that. Still fresh. Blood still coming out. You can see their faces. And, and I, I still, as soon as I looked in to know like how many they are, I'm looking through. It's about 25 of them, 26 of them. And as soon as I look, the first RPG hit the first truck. And perhaps as I turn, I can see the gunner flying away. Because it was not like a Humvee or armored. It was like a pickup truck. So when you, when you shoot a bullet, it comes in from one side, gets out of the other. Toyota trucks. And, uh, and the first RPG hit. And bullets started coming at you. We didn't know where the hell they were. They were behind us, like literally behind the walls inside of those buildings, looking at us, waiting for us to go down. And once we went down, they, they, they got the high ground. Everybody in those vehicles died immediately. They were like close distance to them. We just separated. We didn't know at the time who was dead, who was alive. You know, who was dead, who was alive. Uh, we separated. My, my, my lieutenant went behind one column. I went behind one column, and there was the bridge right next to you, and there was a stairs that goes uh, to the top of the bridge. You walk kind of thing. It's like a rolling thing, and you get to the top of the bridge. Just when we were getting shot at, we only see the barrels from the walls. We don't see them. And I immediately had a radio. I'm talking to my commander, and I keep hearing, like, take high ground, take high ground. So I sent three of my soldiers to go and take the, the stairs, to, to run up the stairs, take high ground so we can get out through the stairs and just get out of there because we knew we were pinned down. I literally watched. I send them up. The first one went in, lay down half of the way. Second one lay down, and the third one, before even making it to the top, just face down. I don't know what happened to them. They just face down and I can see they they're just stopped and there was a sniper to my right side they have appointed to that stairs knowing we would be taking that stairs and the sniper literally had an easy target at him he just shot him they just got him killed him and I couldn't even go I was too scared to go pull him to treat him to, to just pull him behind the columns that became impossible perhaps I'm looking at them they're like about 20 feet away from me but I can't do anything for them. I can't even book myself to the right side. And two of my soldiers who went out to the right side to cover immediately got shot. Um, one of my team members got shot right here. And the bullet went out because he was using, um, he was using a, a sniper rifle. It's called Siminoff. It was, it was fixed, like not an actual sniper. It, it, it's a PKC round. It's a big round. And when he shot him here, he hit him right this side of the body armor and the bullet went out. And I couldn't, I couldn't treat him. I had like, try to put things in there. Uh, the, hey Andy. When the bullet went out, 
of his side, the, the hole was too big. And I, I literally used all my medical, and the, bl the blood was, was, I couldn't do anything. And uh, I realized that at that point, my right side, if I put my finger out, I'm done. And the only way for me to defend them, when they were started moving close to us, they started coming out of the wall. And the only way for me is to go through the left side of the column. And I talk to my commander, I hear nothing. He's behind the other column. And they're getting close. And I have about maybe a few Kurds with me who are fighting, who don't speak my language, who speaks only Kurdish. They don't speak Arabic. So we're talking by signals. And one of the Kurds who I have had a PKC in his hand. He used to be a smuggler in Kurdistan. And the guy used to shoot at the Republican Guard back in the day because he smuggles like, he smuggles like lamb and sheep. And, and the guy, like, he would literally snipe with a PKC. And, and uh, I am confident that QRF in our way is coming to us. That's, that's what I'm confident in. And about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I hear screaming in the radios. And I hear screaming. And I'm like, people are screaming in the radio. And, and it's not my guys. And I'm calling and I'm like, we need somebody here. Like, I have people shot. I need medical attention. And someone answered me. It was a, a, a captain, Iraqi captain, who called me. And he answered me back. He said, I have three bullets in my back. And we're not coming for you. And I have enough people who are injured. They blew up an ID on them and shot them as they were coming for us. They, they went in maybe about half a mile into Haifa Street, and they already had like 16 people shot. They turned around and went back. And I didn't, at that point, I, I don't know how to turn and tell my guys, look, there's nobody coming for you. And your only hope that the Americans would show up, would see this, and show up. So they actually, the Americans saw what happened. They realized if they send a convoy, they're going to get hit. So they immediately sent a convoy to go from that, within the airfield base, to go to the second bridge, cross through all the traffic of Baghdad, come around. It takes about an hour and a half to do that. They sent helicopters and... I, I, the first time in my life of witnessing an Apache shooting. And uh, I still have, I only have one ear to this day. Uh, one ear is that, that's working. The other ear is, is gone. And I, I, I am literally at that point, I don't know how many soldiers I've lost. I don't know. I literally thought like I lost maybe five, six people that they were up there. I didn't know what's going on. And, and I called my lieutenant. No answer. And my soldiers slowly was about to give put the gun down some of them were breaking down so I take the radios from a couple of them and I took the batteries out I threw them away and I just sat there and I'm thinking in my head like how is my mom gonna watch me get beheaded and how is what exactly are they gonna do are they gonna burn me like what, how are they gonna kill me at that point and at that point one of the Kurds made a signal to me he was like we need to cease fire no one is coming here. They want us. And one of them would start talking to us in the radio. And he said, you guys are Iraqis. Give up. We're not going to kill you. You're our fellow countryman. And we'll let you guys go. And at that point, we knew if he, he will behead us. Like, we knew we were the targets. The one that dead got off of it. We're not off. Uh, no. 
I actually immediately took my magazine. I took a bullet out. I put it in my pinhole right here. And we made a deal that if, if we ran out of ammo and no one is here, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the head. And that was the deal we made. Because I, we, we were told, they're like, they'll probably behead you on TV. And I, at that point, I was thinking, like, how is the knife going to go? My, how am I going to handle a knife going through my throat? I'm not doing that. And we took a bullet. We're like, we're done. We're, we're not going to get out of this. We're done. You can see he's talking to us through our own radios. And I, I literally was tired, no water. My water and my camel bag have run out. And we, we ceased firing. And every time they moved close to us, we would shoot at them. And they would back up. And we just sat. We didn't spend. I had, I had 16 bullets when I left. Exactly. 16 bullets left. And every bullet I shot, I wanted to make sure I was shooting it at that person to back up, to not come towards me. And he had, we hid behind the column. What they would do, they would shoot the column with RPGs to disturb you so you can come out and put pressure in you. And imagine you're sitting behind the column. You get hit by an RPG, even though the column was really thick concrete because it's a, it's a bridge column. But you can feel the concrete behind you is shaking on your head. And I, that point, everybody was bleeding. Um, I come out. The Americans made it through the other side of Baghdad. Literally, as soon as a tank came out to the bridge, they ran away. And it, during the fight, I see things blow up on them. I, I see things blow up, but it's not. I don't have an RPG. I don't have even a grenades. Only thing I had is a PKC. That's the biggest thing I had with me. That's, that's the only we're allowed to have. But I see things are blowing up on them. What it was was an Apache coming over the river. And he was unloading at them. And slowly the fire started getting less and less. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. And my ears were so messed up that the Apache was actually above me. I couldn't hear it. And the, all I can see is I'm laying down and I see this Apache come in. And in my first time in my life, I saw the 120 guns the Apache had all like open on them. And my ears went, boom, I couldn't hear a thing. Perhaps when I heard, when I shot a bullet after that, I, I barely heard the bullet. I barely heard, like, I couldn't hear. And I come out, I can't hear. There's a big noise in my, in my ear. And the Americans literally, the first tank comes in, everybody ran. So the Americans come in and they had an ambulance with them. And I come out, there's a lot of dead soldiers in the ground and I'm counting. And you know, you're tired, you're very messed up. And an American medic says, you're bleeding. I said, no, no, it's not my blood. I treated that guy. Uh, I think he didn't make it. Please see if he's, if he's still alive, but there's a lot of blood. She said, no, no, no. It is not someone's blood. Your eyes are open. And I put my eyes right here. And I touched here, and it was like a lip. This eye here was cut. And I didn't realize my eyes were actually cut. And she said, look at your legs. And I looked at my, down on my leg. This pants, the pants on the left side of my leg, was red. So I'm looking at my uniform. It's turned red. I had a shrapnel on my knee from a grenade, and a shrapnel had hit me. And I thought it was like, I thought it was like, uh, 
stones that hit me it, it, from the RPGs. And it wasn't stones. It was actually grenades blowing up near me. And it hit me, and I didn't realize it. I didn't fe feel anything because I, I was sweating. I didn't, and I realized at that point I couldn't see through my right eye. I thought it was a sweat that was coming over my face. I was wearing goggles, and this sweat, I thought, made it through my eyes. And I, I started using my left side. And I'm a lefty originally. I'm a left person. I was using my left side. And, it, and she said, no, it was you. And truly, the moment he told me that, I lay down on the ground. I couldn't move at any point. They put me, I went to the hospital, and they've been seen in a hospital. And it was the green zone. That's the only combat military hospital in Baghdad at the time for the U.S. Army. And the other one was in Balad. And they came in and they said, anybody, because it was such a load in that hospital, American soldiers, Iraqi soldiers are shot. And they said, anybody that has no serious surgery or problem or had just a shrapnel, bend him over, give him some water, and send him home. And I still remember, I had shrapnel in my knee. My eyes are open. They just stitched my eyes, and they gave me a bottle of water. <laughs> I took the bottle, and I said, that's it. And they said, that's it. Take the water. Go home. And I went back to the unit after that. So that concludes part two of Hamidi Jazim, the terrorist whisperer. Here's an excerpt from part three, which will be available next week. So my soldiers were keeping an eye to make sure that no money comes towards me in that room. And I walk in and I sneaked in and I opened that. And I checked everything. And before I really slammed the door, you know, to close the door and, and lock it and, and, and move, I put my hands behind and I felt something behind the uniform. And when I felt it, I was like, okay. I, the one thing went in my head, I was like, okay, they, she, they're going to ask me if I have checked this bag. And of course I have to check it. So I took it out, I put it in the ground, and I actually dropped it. Like, I dropped it. And I was like, what the hell does he keep it in there? And I opened it, and I opened it. So I put my hands, and I feel it's a military belt, but it's heavy. That's when I saw the C4 was all wrapped up around it. When I saw the C4 and I saw, like, the, the wiring, and at that point I was afraid that they could have actually attached it to the locker where it could have blown in my face. <laughs>